All right. Well, thanks again, Alicia. And uh, hey, thanks again for joining us this morning. If you're listening online later, great to have you listening online later uh, to, uh, to our message here this morning. We are in part uh, four of five of the book of uh, Exodus right now in the story in the life of Moses. So, uh, so welcome to that. So question as we begin this morning, um, how many of you have ever ridden a bike? All right, how many of you have not ridden a bike? I'm just kind of curious if we have any, anyone who's never ridden a bicycle before. This is not public shaming, but it might turn into that. Okay, I think just about everybody in this room has ridden a bike, and I would, of course, raise my hand for that as well, even though I didn't. I've certainly ridden a bike, and as some of you know, I've ridden a bike a lot more recently than I have before, and that's a hobby that I've picked up and enjoy. But here's the thing that I wanted to tell you about riding a bicycle, that as I have been picking up riding a bike a whole lot more recently than before, I have started to learn things that I did not know were ever true about biking. Like when I was a kid riding a bike, you just ride your bicycle without thought of um, actually how it works or how the human body works on a bicycle. You just sit on it and pedal and hope it works, right? And one of the things I would do is I'd come to little hills or little rises and I would realize, man, that one looks hard, so I'm going to work hard to get up to the top of that hill. And I would work hard, and maybe you can remember this experience, you work hard to get up to the top of that hill. At whatever age you are, it's a hard hill, you get to the top. And when you get to the top of the hill, goal accomplished because you've ridden to the top of the hill. And now you can kind of recover on the way down. Like, that's the way it works, right? Now, as I began biking and picking up my my biking experience over the years, I learned there's actually something more to it than that. In fact, what I learned is that the healthiest way and the best way to ride up a hill is actually not to ride to the top of a hill, but to ride over the top of a hill. Let me clarify that little difference that a cyclist will tell you that if you are on a bike ride the bike does, the, the ride does not end on the top of the hill in fact if you ride only to the top of the hill you're actually doing your body a disservice because by continuing to pedal immediately over the top of the hill you are distributing the lactic acid that is building up in your legs and you are actually recovering faster by continuing to pedal over the top of the hill, not just stopping and resting at the top of the hill. Does that make sense? Yeah, a little bit. All right. So, so in other words, as I'm trying to recover, as I'm realizing and learning, one of the things you do when you're biking is I no longer am wanting to ride to the top of a hill, but I ride over the top of the hill, and in continuing to pedal, I actually recover a whole lot more quickly than simply riding to the top and giving that up. Now, why do I tell you that? I just thought I'd start with a biking story. It has nothing to do with anything at all. No, I'm just kidding. This is what I think. Life is like this. That when you get to the top of your hill, and whatever that hill is, we can often think, man, I've made it to the top. And the goal has been to get to the top. Like, I graduated, boom, I'm at the top. I got a job, boom, I'm at the top. I got a date with that girl, boom, I'm at the top. I got married, boom, I'm at the top. And now I can kind of just swing it down the other side. But if you get to the top of any of those successful hills, quote-unquote, you're going to realize, actually, the real work comes on the back end. Like, now that I got married, now I don't want to just sustain that. Like, I want a great marriage. I don't want to coast down. Now that I got the job, I want to be great at that job. Now that I'm stepping into faith for the first time, I want to step deep into faith for the first time. Like, the real work comes over the hill, not just getting to the top of the hill. Okay? So success isn't just simply getting to the top, but riding over the top of the hill. And biking has taught me that, that we recover better when we have a plan, a rhythm, 
to continue to push even when we get to the top of the thing that we thought we were going to accomplish. The story of Moses, we have just come to a high point for him. We've come to the top of a hill for Moses. Imagine you being the person whom God calls to say, can you please lead a people of about two million people out from under the bondage of Egypt? You are that leader. And this is a high point. This is a crazy hill that Moses is at the top of. This is an incredibly successful moment in the life of any leader, where the nation of Egypt, the most powerful nation at this time, has been essentially ravaged financially, agriculturally, politically, uh, socially. Their firstborn sons have just all died. I mean, this is a, a massive blow. Militarily, their military was just swallowed up by the, the sea as God closed that back on them. Like, Egypt has just been ravaged, and you are the leader. And I'm telling you, you're at the top of the hill. And now, the real work comes. And now, if Moses doesn't keep pedaling, he doesn't keep pedaling, He will not be able to sustain the opposition that will actually continue to come. And one of the reasons that we're in this series is because I said at the beginning, there are different seasons of life that you will find yourself in. And there's a season of life where sometimes we get to the top, we get to the point, and we think, now I can kind of cruise it. And I want to, this morning with the life of Moses, bring you to see what Moses deals with at the top of his hill and beyond and introduce to you what I think and let you see what I think is one regular rhythm of Moses, this regular rhythmic pedaling that he keeps coming back to over and over and over and over and over again to recover, to recover, to recover once he gets over the top of the hill because then when success comes, then the real work comes. All right? So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me to the book of Exodus. It's the second book in your Bible. Exodus chapter 19 is where we're going to start this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, not a problem. You can just steal your friends. Just rip it right out of their hand. They'll be fine with that. Um, or you can take one from our pew uh, around you, and that's our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, that's no problem. Be glad to have you take that uh, home with you, all right? So Genesis is the first book in the Bible. Exodus is the second. You should be able to find that in there pretty uh, easily there. Exodus chapter 19. And we are going to be covering a bunch of Moses' life this morning, a little over 40 years of his life. We're going to try to, try to nail down in just a few minutes here, all right? Exodus 19, I'm reading from the 1984 NIV version of the Bible, beginning at verse 1. So in the third month after the Israelites had left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they, also, or they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Now, pause it there just for a second. If you were with us two weeks ago, you remember that Moses met God here already through the burning bush in this very spot, that Moses has now returned to the spot where God caught the bush on fire and had the conversation with him. Now Moses is in tow with two million people who he is bringing with him to the spot where God said, Moses, go get them, bring them on back. And here we are, three months after they left Egypt, in this very spot. So verse 3, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And now in verse 5, he introduces a covenant that is a fundamental covenant 
or promise that's going to carry throughout the Scriptures and impact us even today. Now, he says in verse 5, If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So in this moment, this is a really uh, special, profound moment, because God is saying to Moses, I'm going to create a covenant with you, and you're going to be my people, all right? You're going to be mine. Out of all the people, you're going to be mine. This is what we call uh, the Mosaic Covenant, the introduction of what we call the Mosaic Covenant. It's built on the promises of what was introduced in Genesis in the Abrahamic Covenant with Abraham, but there's going to be more covenants that will come. David's covenant will come later, and then now we believe the church is in what we call the New Covenant. But the Mosaic Covenant is one of the essentially four foundational covenants in in all the Bible that kind of frames up how God interacts with his people. So we have the Mosaic covenant introduced here, really big covenant. And then this is what Moses does. So verse 7, so Moses, taking this news, he went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. And look at the response of the people in verse 8. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. A good answer, a big moment, good answer. Like Moses is taking this back. God, the people are in. They all said we're in. Like we're, we're here, we're three months out, and you're telling us we're, we're going to be your treasure possession. Like whatever you need to do with us, like we are in. We saw what you did in Egypt. We are in. Like they, they just are coming off the end of a retreat, right? And the campfire is going. They're signing away their life. Like we are in. We're ready. Blank check. Use me. Whatever. We're in. We're in. We're in. This is a big moment for the people of Israel. Okay? Now, what happens next is in chapter 20, um, God speaks the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel, and then for the next several chapters, uh, God begins to explain to them some social laws and lays out uh, how the temple should be um, uh, handled and uh, basically how the um, uh, the, the covenant is confirmed, and, and the tabernacle, I said temple, I meant tabernacle, how worship is to be played out. So in this environment, in the next several chapters in the book of Exodus, God is saying, you're going to be with each other for a little while, and you're going to be in this desert, and I want you to understand how to function, because there's a lot of you, you need a governmental structure, you need a system structure, you need a worship structure, here's what it's going to be. So for a little while in the book of Exodus, that is laid out. Now, by the time we get to um, Exodus 32, you can turn to Exodus 33 a while if you'd like, but by the time we get to Exodus 32, um, Moses has went to essentially confirm this covenant with God. So imagine what's happening for a minute. That in Exodus 19, Moses comes back down, the people say, we're all in, there's this big moment, and God, through Moses, tells the people, here's what worship will look like, here's what your social structure should look like, here's how this is going to work for you as a people. And then... In, in the later chapters, Moses then goes back up to meet with God. And he goes essentially up into, onto the mountain, into the cloud, and disappears. So as a people, just imagine, put yourselves in the, the people's shoes for a minute. As a people, you are coming off of a high, and here goes Moses going up to meet with God. How long are you going to wait for Moses to come back? Because here you are in the desert. And Moses is gone, and you cannot text him. He is not updating Twitter. You do not know what is going on on Mount Sinai. And so day one passes, and Moses is still up there. And day two passes, and Moses is still up there. And day three, and day four, and day 10, and day 20, and day 30, 
now a month into this thing, and you're starting to hear, like, he's dead. I mean, there's, I don't know, is he coming back? I don't know. How do I know? I don't know if he's coming back. And like, well, we got to do something. Like, what are we going to do? Day 35, he's still not back. I don't know what's going on. You know what's going on? I don't know what's going on. By day 40, the people get so antsy that they take off their gold earrings and all that. They come to Aaron and say, Moses is gone. We don't know what happened to him. Help us out. Make us an idol. They give all the, the gold that they have, and, and Aaron puts the gold in the fire and uses a tool to craft a little golden calf. And you may have heard that story. They're the people bow down and worship this golden calf and then basically commence like Mardi Gras event, like experience revelry is what the text says. Like you just start partying. At which point God with Moses in Exodus 32, says basically, Moses, these people that you let out of Egypt, I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. I'm going to start over with you. I'm going to build a new nation out of you because these people are stiff-necked people. I'm going to wipe them out now. To which Moses is like, oh, well, God, can, you, can we give them another chance? Do you mind if we just try this again? Because if you do that, then the people of Egypt will say, what God is this that took the people out of the nation only to kill them at Mount Sinai? What God does that? To which God essentially says, all right, Moses, we're going to give another chance, but I'm pretty upset with these people, and I'm going to lay it out in chapter 33. So look at chapter 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and all the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go to the land that I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you. Because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. Isn't that nice? Like, I, I know myself, and I know that I am so mad right now that if I go along, there's going to be one of you who's going to make me angry, and I'm done. Like, I mean, that's essentially what we're seeing. Like, I'm so angry that it's better for you, trust me, you go alone. I'm going to send my angel, good luck with all that, let me know how it goes, send me a postcard from the promised land, because if I go, I'm going to kill you all. Moses and the people panic. Verse 4. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn. And no one put on any ornaments. There goes Mardi Gras and the revelry. There that goes. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you're a stiff-necked people, and if I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now, now take off your ornaments, and I'll decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb, another word from Mount Sinai. Verse 7. So, what happens next is something that Moses defaults to. This is his rhythm. This is his, I'm at the top, and I don't want to just coast it down. I've had success of leading these people out. By all measures of success, I've had it. And now this is my rhythm. And what he does next, he does over and over and over and over again. Verse 7. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. And anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. 
And as Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance. And while the Lord spoke, while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Okay? Now, Moses made this decision. I'm going to set up this tent, and I'm going to go meet with God out here all the time. And this is what happens inside of the tent of meeting. We get to now zoom in verse 12. So, so Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And then here's what Moses said, verse 15. If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else, this is an incredible question he asks, what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? What else could there possibly be? In verse 17, to wrap this part up, and the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Moses is asking an incredible question. God, if you don't come, what else is going to distinguish us? How are we going to be set apart? How is anyone going to know that we are your people and that you are with us? I mean, how is this going to work? And you would think, you would think that after the success of leading the people out of the nation of Egypt, after the success and the moment of the Ten Commandments are, are coming and God is saying, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and all the people are like, hoorah, we're in, write a blank check, end of the retreat, let's sign it off, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. You would think that after that, and even especially after this moment, where some people were, were killed in light of the golden calf incident, and the, the, the ante is up again, the people make another commitment to follow God. You would think, you would think, that after all that success, quote-unquote, that the road would be fairly free and clear now for Moses and the people of Israel. That they would get it and they would understand and that Moses would deal with little opposition as he continued to walk these people to the promised land. Because how much more do you need than what God has already done for you? And what we see in the life of Moses and in the nation of Israel is that they continue over and over and over and over again to run into significant opposition, significant problems. In fact, the story of Moses carries on for books in your Bible through the end of Exodus, and then Leviticus, and then into Numbers, and even into Deuteronomy, where we're going to finish next week. And in the book of Numbers, there's a section of chapters that just line up one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other, opposition that Moses continues to face. In Numbers chapter 11, the people of the nation of Israel by this point have been wandering in the desert and have been receiving manna or just essentially bread from heaven. And they are so sick and tired of eating the same thing all the time that they cry out for meat. And Moses finally worn down with their cries because what the nation of Israel says over and over again is, Moses, why would you bring us out here to kill us? It would have been better if we just stayed in Egypt. 
At this point, Moses says, you know what, God, I can't bear the weight of this request. People want meat. Where in the world can I get this kind of meat from? And Moses is so discouraged by Numbers 11 that I think in verses 13 to 15 it is, Moses actually asked God to take his life. Is it better for me to die? Please kill me here. He is so discouraged. To which God finally says, Moses, I'm not going to kill you. It's not that easy for you, my friend. I'm going to deliver so much meat to these people that they're not even going to be able to eat the meat that they have before more meat will come to them. And he delivers quail after quail after quail after quail, and people cannot handle all the meat that they get. In Numbers 12, the very next chapter, Moses has a sister. Her name is Miriam, and then Aaron is his right-hand man. We don't know where Moses is at this time, but Moses' own sister and Aaron, who are part of whatever lead team that would be, right? they start complaining against Moses. We're talking about internal battling, and they say, we can't... Miriam apparently started this, kind of whispering, I can't believe he married that Cushite woman. Now, I'm not a woman. I don't know what women talk about, but I think every now and then they talk about relationships that people have. Who likes who? Who's dating who? Who's going to do whatever with this or that? I don't know. I'm not going to judge that. I'm not going to, whatever. It just is. Anyway, Miriam starts a conversation to which Aaron is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And aren't we like equal with Moses? Like what gives him the right to lead these people when he made a decision to marry that woman anyway? And they begin to have this internal deal where God just calls them on it. And Moses is like, are we really doing this? Like, they wanted meat here, and now you guys are cutting the, me down? And, Moses, uh, and, and God essentially strikes Miriam with leprosy for seven days. And the nation of Israel has to wait on that. In Numbers chapter 14, we get a report of the, the 12 spies that were finally sent out into the land. And so they're in the desert, and they take 12 people, one from each tribe, and send them into the promised land. And in the promised land, these, these, uh, these men take 40 days, and they look around the promised land, and they come back in Numbers 14, and they report into the people. And 10 of them, if you know the story, I'll tell you if you don't, 10 of them are like, it is a no-go. Nope impossible. People are too big. The land is too uh, strong. The systems are too great. We don't have anything. Have you looked around us? We're in the desert, all right? Like, we don't even have a wall, and we're going to try to take over. No go, no go, no go. And down the line, 10 of them, 10 of the 12 are like, sorry, not going to happen. Joshua and Caleb are like, we need to follow God. We're going to go take it. But the people sided with the 10 and said, we're done. We're not going to do this. To which God, in his anger, is ready to do what? To, To eliminate the nation again. And Moses says, God, please hang on a second. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Just, just wait. Just wait. And God punishes the nation of Israel and says, for 40 years you're going to wander in the desert. Anyone 20 or over, you're going to die because you've allowed this kind of lie and fear to take over your heart. That's Numbers 14. Numbers 16. And they're in the middle of this wandering. A guy by the name of um, Korah gathers 250 of his closest friends and comes to Moses and and says, Moses, what gives you the right to lead? Look at all of us, members of the the tribe of Levi even, who are here. We have spiritual authority. These are leaders in the community. Moses, we're here to tell you that your leadership has fallen apart. No, you you don't have us anymore, man. And, And we believe that God has called us to lead. To which Moses falls face down and he says, God clear this up for us. And he says to Korah, and this is called Korah's Rebellion in number 16, he says, listen, tomorrow we're going to meet with God, and God's going to decide who should lead these people. We're going to draw a line in the sand. You bring your 250 people, and we're going to stand before God, and he's going to make a decision. And the next day, 250 people are swallowed up by the earth who are rebelling against Moses. 
And over and over and over and over and over again, Moses faces significant opposition after he got to the top of the hill. The peaks and the valleys continued for Moses' leadership. And it finally brings us to the last opposition I want to look at this morning that drives home the point that I'm going to be trying to make in Numbers chapter 20. If you have your Bible, turn over there with me to that, um, to that uh, chapter, and we're going to look at, at the very beginning. Numbers chapter 20. It goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then Numbers. So in Numbers chapter 20, what has happened in that history of the nation of Israel is that the, the nation has wandered for 40 years. They are now coming off of their 40-year wandering, and all that rebellion, all that junk, all that internal fighting is now past them. Moses is still leading them, and now we have a new generation, a new generation that's coming and, and ready to go, right? So verse, 20, or verse 1 of chapter 20, in the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh, and there Miriam died and was buried. A very interesting note. Think about that for a minute. Moses' sister, even though she did what she did a few chapters earlier, this is still his sister. Now, 40 years removed from that problem, but this is his sister and his uh, treasured sister that she has died. And so Moses has to be going through some kind of grieving process. They come in the first month. This is the time, by the way, the nation should be celebrating the Passover. This is what they should be doing. And verse 2, now there was no water for the community. Forty years after the rebellion. And the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. A new generation, like ready to come in. Like we thought this was over. And here they come. This is the first description we have of this new generation. The people gather in opposition to Moses and Aaron again. And they quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place that has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink? Moses is about 120 years old by this point. Would you get tired of hearing that? And you ever get tired of, of kids nagging at you for the same thing over and over and over again? Imagine hearing that when you're 120 and your sister just died. Like, this is what's happening for Moses. Like, I thought this rebellion would be kind of meted out in the desert. Like, all of your parents died and grandparents died because of their rebellion. And the first thing we have for you, new generation, you don't have water? You don't have water? You, don't have water? you think God can't give us water? <laughs> Really? And so what does Moses do? He's at, he's at another hill. And he gets into his rhythm. He gets into his rhythm. And look at it with me. Verse 6. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting. That place that Moses had set up from the very beginning. That, by the way, in each of the points of opposition that I laid out for you just a few minutes ago, Moses went back to the tent of meeting every time. That is his peddling cadence. That is his rhythm of recovery that he goes to. And so he went to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell face down. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. 
It's very clear what God wants him to do. Go talk to the rock and let me do the work. And so, verse 9, Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him, and he and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels. I'm old and cranky by now. He doesn't address them in any kind of patient tone, which I can understand, kind of. Listen, you rebels. And it's amazing that he calls them rebels in light of what he is about to do. Must we bring you water out of this rock? Wait a minute, Moses. You aren't bringing anything out of the rock. You're talking to that baby, and God's bringing the water, right? And then, verse 11, Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff, which is not what God told him to do, you rebellious Moses. And water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. And we have a problem. Because Moses, while calling them rebels, has just done the same thing. In fact, the reason this is such a big deal is essentially what he's doing is he's taking the people back to the nation of Egypt. This behavior, this expression of how he carried himself in front of the people would have been exactly what the Egyptian sorcerers and magicians would have done. This is how they carry out their spells. They'll draw their attention, they'll raise their hand, and they'll hit what they hit with their staff. This is, this is a, a hearkening back to essentially saying, listen, this, this magic, this sorcery, this power comes from me. Like, look to me. Do I need to be the one to do this for you? And he hits it, and this is what gets God so angry at Moses, too. And so we read of Moses' punishment in verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. After all this wandering and after all this work, Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land because he hit the rock instead of speaking to it. Not just because of that, but because in this moment of leadership, he drew the attention himself instead of to God. And so what can we say? This life of Moses that is constantly, this season of his, after the success of being drawn out of the nation of Egypt, is constantly going through these peaks and valleys, constantly dealing with opposition and struggle, constantly moving through the internal fight and the external fight, just always moving in and through that. And there's a season of life where after you, quote-unquote, succeed, after you get what you wanted, after you get married, after you get into college, after you get the role in the play, after you get the job, the spot on the team, after you start your business, after you step into faith, after you reconcile with your, your spouse or your ex, after you make a commitment to start a new habit, after you, whatever. Like, there's a season of life where we think, now that we're all high and we're good to go and we believe God, anything you want, God, anything you want, God, anything you want, God, I'll do. Like, I'm with you, full on. Like, take me, take my life. And then like 40 days later, it's like, who is God? Who made that commitment? And this is the story of our lives. We get to the top of the hill and the instinct is to stop pedaling because it hurts when you get to the top of the hill. There's pain to get there. It takes a tremendous amount of energy to be successful once. But you know and I know The key is not simply being successful one time. The question is, how in the world do you sustain success in your faith, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your relationships? How in the world do you sustain that? And that distinguishes people in a hurry. 
And this is why in the life of Moses, you know, here's what we see, that being successful requires a tremendous amount of energy. We just need to acknowledge that. When I say being successful, I mean, you can define that however you want to. I've laid out some things here for you, whether that for you is getting on the team or be, you know, getting a spot in the, the regional choir or getting a spot in the play or, or uh, you know, starting a new business or you know, getting married or whatever it might be for you, you know, meeting a financial goal, whatever it is, stepping into your faith in a deeper way, whatever that is, being successful, you know it, it requires a tremendous amount of energy. You've got to eliminate some things and choose to do other things. You've got to make good decisions. You've got to be courageous. You have to be daring and bold. You have to be forgiving and gracious. You have to be wise. Being successful once requires a tremendous amount of energy. Now, here's what we see in the life of Moses. He sustains success over, over, years and years and years and years and years of time. And the reason we know that is we're still talking about the guy today you know his name. In fact, when we meet someone uh, you know, who's, whose name is Moses, who comes back from that, it's like, oh, we know where that came from. Because it's a strong name. So here's what we say about sustained success. So sustaining success requires a tremendous source of renewable energy. Becoming successful or being successful requires a tremendous amount of energy. But sustaining success requires a tremendous source of renewable energy. This, for me, in the life of Moses... This renewable energy, this continual pedal cadence over the top is let me come back to the tent of meeting. Let me come back to the place where I meet with God. Let me come back and fall face down before God over and over and over and over and over again. That is his pedaling cadence over the top of the hill. That is his rhythm over and over again. God, I need to meet with you. God, I need to humble myself before you. I need you before me over and over and over and over and over again. And so I need to ask myself, and I want you to think about it for a minute. What's your rhythm on this? What's your routine? Where does your renewable sense of energy and vision come from? And see, for me, like, let, me, let me just put my cards and open up a little bit here for you, okay, and just kind of speak as I can friend to friend. Um, stepping into these things in, in terms of sustaining success and meeting with God, number one, we can make it sound super spiritual, as, as in, uh, um, I, I grew up uh, in, a, in a world, an environment that, that simply like nailed down for us a daily devotional culture. For some of you, that means something. For some, it doesn't. And for me, what that meant was, um, if you do daily devotions, like life is fine. And I've come to realize that, and I think I've said it to you before, that life is less about devotions and more about devotion. Right? Like, I want to take the S off of that word and talk about devotion to God. That the heart circles back, the soul wants, the soul needs a connection with God in this tent of meeting. Like, there was generation upon generation upon generation of people who didn't even have a Bible that they could read. And so devotions as a single thing that will renew our heart isn't what I'm saying. So listen to me carefully on that, please. A regular rhythm, however, a regular discipline, a regular face down before God is what I'm talking about. It is what I'm talking about. And so for me, 
Like sometimes, let me just be, be, you know, again, open to you on this one. Like sometimes for me, that means like I know that I need some time, whether it's down in my basement office, just I need to step back and kind of pull that curtain aside and step in and say, God, I need to meet with you here badly. Like I don't know what to do for where we're going. I, do, I don't know. And I'll also sometimes for me, this space is on my bike, right? I, sometimes in the off occasions where I make a really bad decision and run, Sometimes it's when I run that there are these spaces in my life where I'm renewed in my connection with God and I meet with God in those moments. And it's not just sitting there, um, you know, having what some might call a daily devotion and the weight of that burden of legalism that every day you must, you must, you must. We're talking about a rhythm of wanting to connect to the heart of the Father, wanting to connect with God and developing that rhythm and that passion to say, God, I want this, I want this, I want to connect with you in this way. And so for me, this is what I need. And so for me, one of the real simple practical questions I might ask you, and I would be glad for you to ask me too, but this is, this is it. When is the last time, literally, that you have fallen physically now. I'm just physically face down before God. So God, you, not me. You, not me. I, I don't know what to do. Or even worse, God, I think, I'm sure I know what to do. And I haven't even asked you. Like, when is the last time your physical posture has been, let me get down on my knees and head to the ground. God, I need you. I need your wisdom. I need your direction. Because this is what Moses did with routineness that developed a sustainable rhythm for him to face all the opposition that he came. Because success long-term is never going to mean you're going to navigate around all of the junk. It just means as you're going through all the dumb things that come in life, like Moses did, you're going to find a place, a cadence, a rhythm of meeting with God and connecting with him. So the life of Moses is an incredible life to study and to see. For me, and I hope for you, you can see, in this long period of leading people through vision, clarity, direction, all that, in your period of life where you want to be successful in whatever you want to call that, whatever you want to call it, in your marriage, in your family, in your school, in your finances, in your faith, I don't care, whatever you want to call it, sustained success is going to require a tremendous source of renewable energy for you because you're going to have to be sharp you have to be wise, you have to be courageous and discerning. I'm telling you, Moses' choice was let me go to the tent of meeting and let me go face down before my God over and over and over and over and over again without fail. Let me encourage you. If Moses did it and God met with him, what a great option for our hearts to fall face down before our God with routineness. Now, this story ended today with Moses failing, and I appreciate that because I think it brings reality to us. Because I will continue to fail, and you likely will too, and this is Moses did. So the question is going to be, for someone like Moses who navigated so many things pretty well, but then failed, what's his legacy going to be? What's his story going to be? How's he going to be remembered? And that is our final message in this series coming next week, Moses Part 5. Be glad to have you with us. Let's pray together. Our good God and Heavenly Father, I thank you for the chance to be together this morning to get into your word, to see um, how you move and how you have shaped leaders like Moses. And I pray for us as people, as men and women and young men and young women in this room and listening online, 
later, that uh, we would have this, this stirring in our heart and in our passions and our convictions to, to want to, to meet with you, to, to ask for your wisdom, to lean into your guidance, and to be moved in relationship with you, to know you, and to, to care about the things that draw your heart and, and are of interest to you. And I pray that you would keep us from going through too much of life without coming to the proverbial tent of meeting, without coming before you and falling face down as a husband and as a new dad or mom, you know, as a student in middle school or high school or someone graduating from college or coming toward the twilight years and trying to figure out what's next. I pray that you would help us, no matter what stage we're in, to develop this rhythm of coming before you over and over and over and over and over again to come back to this firm foundation, this firm foundation of our relationship with you, of Jesus' work on the cross to save us and reconcile or draw us to you. And so I I pray, Father, that you would remind us and draw us again that we need, we need to continue to come back over and over and over with all the junk that that entails face down before you, our firm foundation. We pray this in Jesus' name.